Okay, so the first reading tonight comes from Ephesians 5, starting at um, 21, on page 1227. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as the church, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by, wash, by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, the next reading is from Revelations 19, and starting at verse 6, and that can be found on page 1301 in the Church Bibles. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Oh, while you've got your Bible open there, flip back to the Ephesians reading. That'll be uh, helpful for us as we look at that first. And we'll come back a little more briefly to the Revelation passage at the end. <coughs> Now there's an outline around, although I think I might not have printed quite enough uh, of those, so if you hopefully got one or you can look one to, to someone else's. Um, now, before Soph and I started going out, uh, Sophie's my wife, if you uh, don't know that, before we started going out though, um, yes, not Sophie up the back who's now in hysterics, um, there was about five or six weeks of confusion that I caused her. Uh, you see, we'd known each other over the course of a few years, uh, but there was a bit of a gap in time, uh, and then we kind of got back to, got, uh, you know, came back into each other's circles in a sense. Um, we'd met playing ultimate frisbee, uh, we'd hung out a bit, uh, we'd even studied a, uh, more college external studies course, uh, together with some other people. Um, but as I drew a bit nearer, um, there was five or six weeks of confusion there for Soph. 
I, you know, I was talking with her on the phone. I went to one of her lacrosse matches where she played lacrosse. I hung out at her place with her friends and things. I even invited her over to my place uh, and she had dinner with me and my parents. But I hadn't made any commitment yet. Bad idea, guys. Kind of don't do it like that. I hadn't expressed my intentions. Um, and what resulted was confusion and insecurity. You know, was I really interested or not? I seemed interested, but I hadn't kind of said anything. I hadn't actually expressed it. Was I just playing games or was I serious? What should she do? Should she just keep walking along blissfully ignorant as if there is kind of commitment there uh, with the risk of getting seriously hurt? Or, or should she back off now before her heart uh, has stepped in too far? Well, uh, things changed uh, a bit when I finally asked her out. There was, a, there was a bit more clarity. There was a bit more security, a little calming of the nerves. That all came from the commitment that we made at that point. Uh, we committed to working out whether we wanted to get married. Uh, and that commitment kind of went pretty well. Um, we, about five months later on, on our way back from Beach Mission, uh, I asked Soph to marry me. Uh, and at that point, we committed again, we, a little bit more. We committed to getting married. Uh, a little more clarity, a little more security, maybe a whole lot more nerves as well. But, uh, yeah, the, the commitment brings a difference in relationships, doesn't it? Any kind of relationship, in fact, when there's commitment there. Whether it's in a team that you play on uh, or, or, or a team that you're in, work colleagues, friendships or romantic relationships. Commitment changes the ball game. Okay, there's clarity, there's security, dependability. You can, you know, you can rely on the other. You invest more, you, you give more, you work together and there's great joy as you do. But, of course... When there is an expression of commitment as well, but it doesn't translate into action, that's actually going to have the opposite effect, isn't it? It's going to break trust. It's going to breed confusion, multiply insecurities. Still, when it comes to commitment, when it's in the same direction and to the same degree in relationships, it makes a huge difference. Well, tonight as we continue our series in serving without sinking, as we seek to keep our joy and serve Christ, this week again we're going to be fixing our eyes on him, on Jesus. And we're going to see the difference it makes in our relationship as we see him as the committed bridegroom, the committed groom and us as his bride, the difference that that makes to the way that we understand ourselves, the way that we relate to him, the way that we serve him. Now, um, in the scriptures, um, we see a number of different kind of images used there. There's descript different descriptions of our relationship with God, aren't there? You can kind of might be able to think of some. There's the, the head and the body kind of idea. Christ being the head and the church, his people, as his body. There's a, there's a family kind of idea with God as father and us as his children, brothers and sisters with Jesus adopted into his family. But tonight, we're going to be focusing on the one of marriage. The one of marriage. God as husband or, or groom and his people as bride. Now, I think this can feel a little strange. It can be a little hard to get our handle on it. Uh, because when we hear about 
this kind of relationship, we hear about marriage and, and the way that it's applied to, to God and us, we tend to think from the known to the unknown. We think from what we see around us, human marriage in the world, and we, we sort of try and think up to the relationship between us and God. And this causes us all kinds of questions and issues to come up. How is it that we, together as a group, all of God's people in fact, are kind of one bride and, and take that place? How does the physical intimacy of human marriage and that relationship apply to or get, get mapped to our relationship between us and Christ? Maybe if you're a guy or an unmarried woman, you kind of simply don't normally see yourself as a bride. Um, maybe even your experience of marriage, whether in marriage or as one uh, in the context of, of a marriage nearby, has brought much pain and hurt. And so you struggle with this idea. Well, I think, Lots of that comes from us thinking about human marriage first and then looking up. But in fact, although the first marriage in the Bible is Genesis 1 and 2 and, and that between Adam and Eve, there's actually a marriage or a betrothal, if you like, a promise for marriage that comes earlier. Now, don't worry, you won't go finding it in the contents page or anything like that. Um, it's actually earlier in history before the creation of the world. If you're in Ephesians chapter 5, just flip back a couple of pages from our Ephesians reading we had earlier uh, to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. This is what Paul says uh, about us, God's people. Chapter 1, verse 4. For God, he, chose us in him, that is in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This, sorry, just a minute. There we go. Um, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, this happened. This is actually the betrothal of God's people to Christ, to the groom. It's not, you see, that the institution of human marriage is the model for the relationship between Christ and the church and his people, but it's the other way around. This is the primary marriage, God says. Human marriage itself points beyond itself to the marriage el primo, that between Christ and the church. That comes first. That's the first and foremost. So then what does this marriage, this relationship, described as a marriage between Christ and his people, how does, what does that teach us about ourselves and about uh, the context in which we live as Christians, which we serve as Christians? Well, I think it starts, and a big part of it, is by bringing a greater depth to our relationship as we understand in a new light the love of Christ. It's not just... Christ's undeserved love, but it's his committed love. His committed love. Now, uh, the marriage relationship um, is first and foremost about commitment, really, isn't it? Uh, that's a big part, uh, probably the, the biggest part, because marriage is a, is a covenant. It, it's a kind of Old Testament language covenant. It's, a, it's an agreement. 
where you make promises and promises even to keep those promises, promising to love this other exclusively and promising to continue to do so. So then, in that context, as Christ the groom commits himself to love, to love persistently, that committed, persistent love lays the foundation, makes the space, uh, paints the scene into which we might then live as his bride, the church, into which we might serve. Let's think a bit more about that love that Christ has for the church. How does he love the church? Well, firstly, undeservedly, and we'll uh, pick this up uh, through the scriptures, undeservedly. Now, the people whom Christ takes as his bride, that is us, we're not the pick of the bunch. We're not, you know, I don't know that if the show's called, you know, The Bachelorette or whatever. We're not most eligible number one kind of there on the screen. Nor are we sweet-hearted, pure Cinderella, you know, merely trod down by those around her. For us, whether or not we can see the dirt on the outside, whether or not our clothes are actually rags or something special, God says there's actually dirt on the inside. Dirt on the inside of this bride. You see, and it's, it's not a new truth in a sense either. Uh, this is part of the, the marriage relationship between God and his people is something that God's, been, God's picked up on throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, you might like to look at it later, uh, but God parallels the history of him dealing with Israel, his chosen people, uh, as a man who betrothes, who, who promises to marry an orphaned, pitiful kind of outcast, one that, who was thrown out at birth, who no one wanted to care for. But God comes along and tends her and cares for her. He, he blesses her. He brings her, he, he, yeah, blesses her and brings her rich, riches, clothes her richly. But Israel grows up to become the unfaithful wife that he had promised to love. Time and again, Israel, the nation, runs to other lovers, the, the false gods of the nations around them, or just the other nations themselves, their, their prosperity, their wealth, their military prowess, desiring them more than they do their husband, the Lord, the one who had given them so much. Uh, to teach Israel vividly of the way that they are wayward with the Lord, uh, God instructs Hosea the prophet, one of his prophets, to do this. He says to Hosea in, in Hosea chapter 1, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land, that is Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. That's a, that's a pretty full-on metaphor in the life of one of the prophets in Israel, isn't it? Then later on, in fact, after Gomer, the wife that Hosea takes, has left him and gone to another, God instructs him to go and to bring her back, to, to redeem her, to bring her back from her adulteries and to love her again. For this is how the Lord has loved the Israelites. 
This is the kind of bride God, Christ, takes to himself when he takes us as his people. This is the kind of undeserved love Christ has for his church. And as we grasp his love being so undeserved, it gives all the more weight to its certainty in that context of commitment, doesn't it? Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Or that he still loves you? Maybe he loved me once, but he he wouldn't still love me. If God can love, can even commit, promise to love his people when we were like that, how will he not also persist in keeping those promises now to us as his bride? I think we can still, in our relationship with God, fear admitting our wrongs when we doubt this. We can fear acknowledging our sin. We can fear kind of opening up and letting God see those corners, those deep, dark corners of our lives, of our hearts, worrying that God might still reject us. Oh, you know, he wouldn't like it if I was thinking that. Or not bless us, maybe, because we're still struggling with that same old sin, that same old struggle. You don't need to hide or or try and struggle on on your own. In fact, Jesus knew all the skeletons in the closet of his bride before he took us to be his. And he knows them all still. And yet he's still committed to loving us so undeservedly. As we see just how undeserved Christ's committed love for us is. I think it also leads us on to see the depth of the sacrifice of his love as well. How purposeful and sacrificial his love is. Uh, Come with me uh, back to Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we read these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and verse 27, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ gave himself up for the church, for this one, so so undeservingly. Rather than keeping his life, that which was his own, he lay it down for the church. Now, a sacrifice like that, you know, sounds wonderful, but it would actually be meaningless if it, if it didn't have a purpose, if there was no reason for it. Um, but there was a reason for what Christ did. Him laying down his life was the price of our redemption, was the cost of transformation. For us, uh, some say uh, that when men <clears throat> when men get married, uh, they hope that their wife will never change. Uh, but when women get married, they desperately hope that their husband will change. 
But when Christ takes the church as his bride, although he takes her just as she is, as we've kind of seen in those pictures from the Old Testament, he takes her just as she is. He loves her too much to leave her that way. Although Christ takes us to be his wife, in that sense, just the way we are, as his people, warts and all, he loves us too much to leave us that way. You see, the price that he paid by giving his life was in in order that he might make his church holy. There's a change of status kind of going on there. He changes the status of this filthy, unfaithful one on the wedding day to now be holy, to be set apart for God, belonging to him. See, that kind of change in status. It's a little like when someone gets married, they, they go from, uh, well, like when Sophie, uh, Sophie Woolcott um, went from Miss Sophie Woolcott and became Mrs. Sophie Brooks. Uh, that's my wife. Before then, you see, Soph wasn't reserved especially for any one man in particular, in a sense. But when I married her, she was set apart for me as my wife and mine only. And likewise, in fact, I for her as her husband and her husband only. You and I have, have gone, have, have changed status if we're one of the people of God. We've, we've gone from the slums to the, to the palace, from the undeserving, filthy orphan thrown out at birth to now the one who belongs to the king and sits with him. Our status has been changed. We are wholly set apart for God. We didn't earn it, we were given it. We can't lose it on that basis. But more than just a change in our status, more than just the kind of change in the address, you might say, there's a change on the inside. Christ sacrificed himself not to just change the externals, but to change us in essence. For verse 27 talks about Christ presenting her, that is the church, to himself as a radiant church, holy and blameless. It wasn't an external makeover, you know, the greatest makeover that we needed, but it was heart surgery being washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what he gave his life for. Not whitewashed kind of exterior, but for pure eyes that don't look to others with covetousness or with lustful intent. For a blameless heart that doesn't act out of pride or wallow in self-pity. For a a holy mind which doesn't seek to orchestrate things for its own benefit. This is what God has not only changed for us, our status, but is bringing us to where Christ is leading us as his bride. Into that fullness of holy, holiness and blamelessness. How good is that? How, How good a place that Christ is leading us. You know, sometimes in earthly relationships, it's easy to doubt the goodness of where someone else is leading you, where someone else is, is taking you. We can feel uncertain. We can feel confused. Is this other person, are they really acting for my good, as you know they say they are in love, or for their good, or for what's, for what's good for them? 
but there's no confusion with our heavenly bridegroom. He's shown us where he's leading us to. He hasn't just expressed a commitment and kind of his actions falling by the wayside, left wanting. He's both expressed that commitment and made it happen by giving, laying down his life. He's leading us there. We can be confident both that he is acting for our good and that he will take us there. In that reading from Revelation uh, that we saw, um, where are we? In that, in that reading from Revelation that we saw, uh, this, this change of action is symbolized by the fine, bright linen uh, given to the bride to clothe herself with. Uh, these clothes are in stark contrast to the other woman in that kind of section of passage uh, in Revelation 19. There's the other woman on the beast, Babylon, who is also kind of wearing special clothes, purple and scarlet, worn by sinful and licentious Babylon. You see, our garments, the, the, the works, in fact, the, the way that Christ is making us like him, the righteous works that he gives us, that's what we're going to be clothed in when we come to the wedding celebration. What we're wearing to the wedding celebration are the good things in one sense that God has prepared for us to walk in and enables us to do so. That's what we as his people have been saved for. How good is it that that part of the glory that we will bring to the bridegroom, to the husband who saved us on that day, will be in us wearing the clothes he has given for us to wear, living out the lives of holiness and blamelessness that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And all of this then changes, all of this changes the way our lives are lived in obedience and service to Christ. We can live in the marriage, live in the context of that secure, committed, undeserved, sacrificial and purposeful love of the one who's committed himself to us, our our husband, our bridegroom. We stand secure there. Our whole relationship with Christ from beginning to end is, is, is being set up outside the realm of any kind of merit or payment. And so we can live with the joyful freedom that that brings, the joyful freedom of simply receiving that gracious love. We don't need to to serve to to try and impress or to draw God's love, God's favour out to us as if he needs to be enticed to show us kindness. He's already overwhelmingly shown it to us and promised us. Sadly, sometimes in human marriages, love can be uncertain, can't it? But not so in relationship with God. Do you ever doubt that Jesus loves you? Do you ever look at your circumstances in life and they cause you to question whether Christ has your best interests at heart? Look back to Christ's marriage vows, as he, you know, as he hung there on the cross for the enemies 
who he would take as his bride. As he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is the security of the context of Christ's committed love. And so in that secure love, we can wear the clothes he has given us with joy for the glory that it brings him, our husband. We don't need to be second-guessing his motivations, living under the fear that our husband will, will leave us. He'll cast us out if we don't conform. When you live the way that Christ has given you to live, following him, when you put another first, delight in the glory that it brings Jesus. When serving is hard and costly, for it is. Look with joy to the, to the husband who clothes you radiantly with righteousness, with holiness, and depend on his strength. Live every day in the, in the context of the marriage. Live every day in the marriage, in the, in the certainty of those promises of love and commitment that we have with Christ. Wake in it, walk in it, rest in it, delight in it. For this is the difference that commitment makes, isn't it? This is the difference that the committed love of Christ for his bride brings as we understand that significance in our relationship with Christ. And so let's live, love and serve in it. Amen.